So if your Bibles, you can turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. We're going to be in verses 13 through 18 as we continue our, our influencers series. And we've talked a lot about these 12 domains or these 12 spheres of influence, and we're going to unpack some of those today. But years ago, I was in Panama City, Panama, and I met a pastor named Dag Mills. And Dag is from Ghana, and you would think, you know, we think of Africa, missionaries going to Africa, these little tribal villages. But this guy is a, is a worldwide influence, planning campuses in New York City and in Brazil and Rio de Janeiro. He had campuses all over the world, just an extremely influential man. And, and we were talking, and he gave me a copy of a book that he had. And I read that book, and one of the stories in the book just stuck with me and still sticks with me to this day. He tells a story in the, in the Spanish War, and in the Spanish War, back then they used four columns. They did try to go from the north, the east, the south, and the west to attack a city. And so they try to attack the city from all four sides, and as they do, they lock them in so that way they could starve them to death of resources and food and water and that kind of thing. So they would take over by keeping all of the people in that city in that city. But there's this one particular war that Spanish generals there, and they're looking from the hillside, and the other nation, the village, is city is beating their four columns. And so one of the lieutenants says, "Sir, sir, we need to find, we need to retreat." We're not going to win this battle. We're, we're losing. We need to retreat and save our, save our men, save our resources. And the old general says, sir, you don't understand. We have a fifth column. So this little tennis starts looking around. He's like, no, we have one, two, three, four. We have the north, east, south. We, we have only have four. He said, no, no, we have a fifth column. He said, what do you mean? He said, three years before we ever attacked this town, we sent in men to infiltrate this city. And they became businessmen, business owners, politicians, lawyers, doctors, teachers. They became neighbors and friends with the people. They began to, to share information and propaganda from our standpoint. And they've been camouflaged covertly inside of this village, inside of this town, inside of the city. And as soon as I give the command, the fifth column will rise up and begin to defeat this town from the inside out. And I believe in the same way the church is that fifth column. I believe many times we, we divert the, the, the responsibility of the warfare to the four columns of the church. We think the church needs to go preach the gospel in the community. The church needs to you know, attack the, the strongholds of, of the world. No, no, there's a fifth column that God has placed you behind enemy lines. And believe me, outside of this church, that is enemy lines out there. He's placed you guys there as business leaders and business owners and teachers and lawyers and, and doctors and, and coaches and neighbors and nurses and neighbors and all these things as a fifth column to infiltrate behind any lines to begin to bring victory from the inside out. And when you finally realize your place in the strategy of God, to bring his kingdom to this world, it will awaken you to the fact God has placed you right where you are for a specific purpose and plan. In 2 Corinthians 10, verse 13 through 18, Paul is defending his ministry. People had started attacking his ministry. Other apostles that were fake, false apostles or fake preachers or fake teachers were attacking him, saying, look what we've accomplished, look what we've done, we've got this following. And they viewed influence as notoriety or fame. And Paul is trying to show them that, that influence is not notoriety of fame, it's actually impact. And he says this, but we will not boast beyond limits, but we'll boast only with regard to the area of influence God assigned to us. God assigns everyone to an area of influence. Not just the Apostle Paul, everyone has a garden of influence in your world. And he says it's to even reach even to you. So he's given me an area of influence to reach people who are not reached, to reach people behind enemy lines. For we are not overextending ourselves as though we did not reach you. For we were the first to come all the way to you with the gospel of Christ. And we do not boast beyond limit in the labors of others, but our hope is that as your faith increases, our area of influence among you may be greatly enlarged. So we may preach the gospel in lands beyond you without boasting of work already done in another's area of influence. For let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. For it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. He is telling the church that there is an area of influence that he's assigned to you. 
and you're limited to that area of influence. Meaning, I, I don't have influence in other churches. I don't have influence in other areas. I only have influence in my family, in this church, and in the shoals. I can't, I can't boast of influence in, in another state or another church that I'm limited. But he also says this, but your sphere or your area of influence can increase. They will actually increase you so that you can increase the faith of others. Right now, you're in an area of influence, and you're either leveraging that influence for the gospel or you're not. But there's people that their faith is contingent upon what you do with your area of influence. And so when you look at the area around you, whether it's your classroom or neighborhood, whether it's your, your doctor's office or the hospital, or you look at our nation or our state or our community, and you complain about it, what you need to be complaining about is that you have not leveraged the influence God gave you. It is so much easier to point a finger at this and point a finger at that. Paul literally says here, when I leverage my influence in my area, other people's faith will increase. And that is my prayer through this series, as you'll realize you have influence and you can use it. And so my point, main point today for you is this, embrace your influence. Embrace it. God has placed in you influence. Embrace it and you'll increase your impact in your family, in your school, in your neighborhood, because they're waiting for somebody to impact them with the gospel. And influence is not some magic word. All it is is the capacity to affect other people's lives. That's all it is. Influence is the ability to, or the capacity to affect somebody else's life, to affect their behavior, their thinking, their ideology, their philosophy. You just have the capacity to affect other people's lives. And so God has given you an area in which you have the capacity to affect other people's lives. You have the capacity to affect the lives of the people that live in your home. You have the capacity to affect the lives of the people that are in your classroom. You have the, the capacity to affect the people that are at the hospital you work with. You have the capacity to affect the people's lives that you serve with in community boards and everything else, that you have the capacity. But we have to move beyond this idea that influence is popularity. How many of y'all ever remember way back in high school for a lot of you, way back when you know, Jesus was coming out of middle school and you were in high school and you voted on class presidents and vice president and student council and all that stuff. You remember those days? Like we didn't ask these people, you know, what's your stance on taxation and representation? You know, what's your economic plan? No, we voted based on popularity. Right, who we liked or who had the most friends. Now we think of influence the social media influencers, who has the most followers, who has the most likes. We base influence based off politicians on polls, who has the most uh, likable uh, agreement or how well they're doing their job. Like we think of influence as popularity. Influence has nothing to do with popularity, it has everything to do with impact. Everything. Some of those influential people in my lives are people you would never know. Dr. Ball was a lady who was a professor at Anne Arundel Community College in Maryland. I was stationed at Fort Meade, Maryland. Uh, I'm this broken, defeated young man who's an atheist. Uh, I'm going to college in the evening. I worked at night in the Air Force. I went to college in the evening at this community college. I took English and college math. And my professor was Dr. Ball. And I remember she introduced herself. She'd been a professor at MIT, a professor at Vanderbilt University, over the entire communications department. And she moved back home to raise her kids. And she was a, a high school English teacher who had taught the brightest of all people at MIT and Vanderbilt. And she taught to keep her credentials up at this community college at night. So here I am in a, a classroom with an MIT teacher and a Vanderbilt professor. And I'm this broken young man. I remember one day we we're going through poetry in this college class. I'm like, this is junk. I was like, this is not even real. Poetry is not real poetry. Like hip hop is real poetry. And she's like, oh, really? I was like, yeah. I was like, I'm in this hip-hop group at the time, which, you know, there's a whole other story and, and all this stuff. And, and so I said, no, I got this book at home. I bought Tupac, had written poetry, right? And so when he, he, when he passed away, when he got killed, he released his, his producers, released this book. I had this book. I said, this is real poetry. And I remember I brought this book to Dr. Bob. And she's like, oh, I'll look at this. I'll check out your poetry. And so she took it. She told me. She read it. She loved it. She enjoyed it. But two weeks later, some punk kid just like me was in her class. She's like, this is not poetry. Hip-hop's real poetry. This is a bunch of crap. And she picked up that, that book that I gave her with Tupac's picture on the cover. She's like, oh, I know, sir. I know. 
But as time passed by, she, she introduced me. I, I never dated her daughter, but she introduced me to her daughter. And I thought, here, I'm this broken young man with no one who believes in me. No one trusts me. And she believed, and she told me this. She said, I just believe sometimes people come along your path to give you a step in a better direction. And it, it still influences me today. I, I've followed up with her since then. A.W. Tozer, one of my favorite authors, written over 60 books that are classics, has sold millions and millions of copies of books. His church was never bigger than Christ Chapel. And what that tells me is your popularity may be limited, but your impact is limitless. But we think of influence as, you know, trying to make a difference right now. But maybe, just maybe, like you're like A.W. Tozer, that you sow some seeds that grow some apple trees that you may never eat the fruit thereof, but people behind you may eat the fruit of your apple tree. Maybe, just maybe, you're like A.W. Tozer, where maybe, just maybe, you're so far advanced in your influence that you're 100 years before your time. And as time moves on, your impact increases. I believe that's what God is calling you. He's calling people to be A.W. Tozers and Dr. Balls and people that don't measure influence by popularity, but by the impact I can make in somebody's life. And when you can make that type of impact, it becomes genera generational. It's like a big flywheel that begins to move the big wheel of the kingdom forward and forward and forward and advance, advance, advance. And so you need to know, just like A.W. Tozer, just like Dr. Ball, you have influence. Right now, there are people that you have the capacity to move them towards their God-given, God-created, God-redeemed destiny. You have the influence. The only question is, do you realize you have the influence? And are you embracing it and using it? Because the people around you, everybody's influenced by something. And God has placed you. You say, well, yeah, I just don't feel like I'm, a, I'm, I'm an influential person. I really don't have anything to offer. I don't really feel like I'm a leader. No, you have, if you have the Holy Spirit residing within you, he is the spirit of influence. Even Jesus says, well, what's the Holy Spirit? What's the key to it? He said, well, it's like yeast, that it's the smallest of all things. But when, it's, when, it's, when it comes full, it makes the whole thing expand and increase. You are yeast that God is placing all around the community so that as, as he begins to work on you, you begin to expand or the capacity or the influence of the kingdom, and it excites the dough. You are there to excite the dough of people so they can embrace the kingdom of God. But you got to know it's in you. If the Holy Spirit's in you, the spirit of influence is in you. Man, this old African pastor one time told this story of this old farmer. So, you know, I, you know farming here, we are elders here talking about farming. But farming in Africa is different. Here you got to worry about, you know, fire ants and mosquitoes. In Africa, you got to worry about lions taking your sheep. And this old farmer told this story that he was one day out with his sheep. He was a rancher slash shepherd. He was out with his sheep. And he heard some rustling over in a little brush by the water. And he goes over there and he finds this little bitty lion cub. Cold, skinny, wimpy, shivering. Sound like a little kitty cat meowing type thing. And he looked around because, you know, you don't want to pick up the baby cub if mama's around. So he's looking around for mama and can't find mama. He feels like it's a band. He takes it home, begins to feed it, get it warm. After a week, the mama lion never came back around. So he ended up raising this little lion cub. And as he raised his lion cub, he raised it around the sheep. It started playing with the sheep, acting like the sheep. He fed it. He would take it out, let it graze with the sheep. And by association, this lion, this king of the jungle, by association, began to act like a sheep. He had lost his identity as a lion because he had conformed to the culture and crowd around him. The old farmer said one day he realized that they're by the creek and the water, the sheep are getting their water, this little lion comes getting his water, and all of a sudden this lion comes out of the bushes. And you hear this huge roar. And the sheep take off into their pen, and that little lion cub, which now is big, runs off into its pen just like the sheep. The lion grabs one of the sheep that got out, ate the sheep, and he's looking at this lion who's just as scared as every other sheep in the pen. And that's when he realized this lion was no longer a lion. This lion was now a sheep. A couple months later, he's at the water hole again. The lion looks down, and he looks down in the water, and he sees his own reflection. And the lion jumps out of the water because the only other lion he'd ever seen was the one that ate the other sheep. 
And lion gets skittish. He pulls back from the water. The other sheep are noon. And they're not disturbed at all. He goes back. He looks again. And about that time, the big lion comes back out of the brush and begins to roar. This time, the lion cub is now grown, looks down, looks up. He sees two lions. He sees one in the brush. He sees one in the water. He looks around. The other lion starts to growl and roar like a lion. This other one is realizing something's going on. The farmer's watching the whole thing. And he realizes this lion cub is having an awakening, an identity crisis between being a sheep and seeing himself in this big lion. And it was almost like the big lion's like, you need to come be with me. And he begins to roar, and the little lion cub begins to roar, and it's like a little kitty cat. Sounds like a sheep. He begins to roar, and it's like, bah. The lion across the river begins to roar, and as he begins to compete with him, he begins to roar, 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 and it's loud, it gets louder and deeper and more of a growl to it. And at some point, the lion cub looks back at the rancher, looks at the lion, and takes off into the jungle. And I think there comes a place we have to realize we have been taught that as the church of Jesus Christ, we are the sheep in culture, not the lions in culture. We've been taught that we have a ba instead of a roar. We've been taught that we are just sheep led to the slaughter instead of lions that are the kings of the culture. And I believe God is raising people up to move into their God-ordained Lion of Judah influence in culture. And I think what happens when it happens is there's a choice, just like this lion come out there, there's a choice to retreat back into the comforts, the safety, the predictability. Of, of church culture and church religion in our homes, or we can be called into the jungle of culture where it's unpredictable, it's untamed, and it's unsafe, but you're called to be there as the pinnacle of culture, not the cesspool of culture. And you have the influence. You have the lion of Judah living on the inside of you. You have the spirit of influence living on the inside of you. And God has placed you in a place right now. He wants to unleash, unleash some lions. And you have a sphere of influence to do that with. As he says, we have an area of influence. We've talked about these 12 spheres, which are family and social services, church and missions, government, law and security, education and students, print, digital, and social media, business and commerce, science and technology, health and medicine, agriculture and environment, non-for-profit and, and service, arts and entertainment, and people groups. Everyone in this room has one of these areas of influence. God has placed you strategically when his God-ordained providence and his plan has placed you in one of these areas of influence to leverage your influence to reach people in that sphere, but also advance his kingdom through that sphere. And so you know it's your sphere because you've been given God-given capacity. Whether it's giftings, whether it's a desire, whether it's passion, God has, God has placed a capacity in you for that influence. Two, you have distinctive gifts and service within those. That if you're a teacher, you have distinct gifts to teach and connect with students. Whether you're a nurse or a doctor, you have giftings of healing and knowledge. Whether it's entertainment, you have creativity and artistic abilities that God has given you within those spheres. Whether it's a not-for-profit or service sector where God has given you these desires, these abilities to, to address issues in society. Whether it's law and national security, God has given you the desire and this, this protection and this serving passion deep inside of you, that you have distinct gifts God wants to use in those spheres, but he's also given you influence within those, that he wants to use within those spheres. He's given you relationships with people that you're connected to and you're connected with. With teachers, you're, maybe your greatest mission field is not just your students, it's the other teachers. If you're a police officer, maybe it's not just the people you're there to protect and serve, but maybe it's the other police officers. He wants to use your influence and your capacity to mentor and disciple and reach other police officers. Maybe if you're a nurse or a doctor, yeah, you're there to serve your patients and take care of your patients, but maybe God wants you to reach other doctors and other nurses with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Like God wants to use you in the relationships he's given you that you're with every single day, 40 hours a week. He wants to unleash the line in you to affect them and impact them for 40 hours a week. And fifth, each one has their own mission. And what I believe is happening 
is God is shifting our mentality. We were talking about this at Elders Retreat. That one of the things that is amazing to me is people now look at a job as a temporary solution to get paid just for that week. And people will go from job to job and minute to minute. They'll go for a dime raise or a quarter raise and they're moving. And no longer do people look at what they do with pride or with mission. And, I, and I'll tell you, no believer has a job. Like every believer in this room, you do not have a job. You have a calling. You have a calling. You may say, well, I hate my job and, I, and you know, I, I just get paid. I'll go home. That's fine. That is how you make money, but you still have a calling within that. You don't have a vocation. You have a mission field. Like God wants to use your hands, your feet, your body, your mind, not just to get a check to go home and put food on the table. He wants to use you where you're at to advance his kingdom because you're the fifth column in his strategy to reach the world. So how do you do that? Well, one, I believe our discipleship groups is our, our primary way. And you say, what is discipleship groups? We've talked about it. We're launching them again in the new year. But it's you being equipped and empowered to disciple three to five other people. It's not a church program. I could care less the people you disciple and mentor and reach come to chapel ever or not. They may be people you work with. Maybe people you do a, a lunch once a week that you just break them the Bible and you disciple the people around you. Maybe nurses on your break, you just disciple them. Maybe other teachers that you work with, coaches you coach with, that you use where God has placed you as an opportunity to multiply who you are into other people. And so real quick, I want to go through five of those today and give you some points on how to do that. Number one is this. The sphere is family and social services. Family and social services, which is God's first expression of love in the universe, was family. The first thing God did when he wanted to express who he was and his character to the world was create family. Families are foundational to every single culture on the planet and are the centerpiece of life. It is no wonder the enemy is attacking the family at its very root system. Because without the family, there is no society. Without the family, there is no culture. Without the family, there is no building of young people into adults. And the family is God's number one sphere of influence. God started with the family in the Garden of Eden, a husband and a wife, and they bore children. He chose a people to belong to him, and he called them by his name and by family. He identified himself with the children of Israel. One of his favorite names to be identified with in Scripture is Father, and the church is affectionately known as his bride. He's referred to as the husband who refers to us as sons and daughters. The number one sphere of influence in all of the universe and the kingdom of heaven is not the pulpit. It is not the classroom. It is the family. Yet it gets overlooked for other vocations and callings we think are more important. As a matter of fact, a godly education begins at home Discipleship begins at home, and influence begins at home. Until you get that right, there is no other ministry at all. And so we need to know that as me, as a believer, if I'm going to have influence, it starts at home. I remember years ago, there was this young youth pastor at our church, and he came in. And you could tell he was upset, and he was kind of throwing a fit, and we found out he was mad at his wife. I mean, it was really bad. So we said, man, let's go to lunch. He's like, man, I just can't stand her. I can't stand this. And it was just bitter, all this bad and one of the guys with us took a water bottle. He took the cap off. He said, you see this cap? He said, that's your marriage. That's your family. He says, if it's empty, you have no ministry. Begin to pour water in the cap. He says, and whatever overflows out of that, that is your ministry. And I would tell you, if you don't have influence in your family, in your marriage, you have no influence anywhere else. Because people won't believe what you're telling them if what you're telling them contradicts how you're living at home. Paul told this to Timothy, an amazing preacher in Ephesus, in 2 Timothy 1, he says, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and then in your mother Eunice, and now I'm sure dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands, for God gave us a spirit not of fear but of power and love and self control. He was saying that, Timothy, you are the byproduct. Not of my preaching. This is the apostle Paul. He's not even saying that. He's not even saying you're a byproduct of me laying my hands on you. 
He's not saying you're a byproduct of my incredible preaching. He's not saying you're a byproduct of my ministry. He's saying you are a byproduct of the influence of your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, which tells us the power of the gospel is contingent on the local family. And so we need stay-at-home moms who view their calling not as a burden, but as a calling. Here's single moms, well, you know, I'm just, I'm missing out on my career. No, no, your best career you could ever have. And I wish everybody, I know not everybody, even stay-at-home dads, the greatest calling you could have is to invest the most developmental years of your kid's life, to invest in them their identity, the foundations of Scripture, and the gospel, and who they are, who they're not. Because if you don't do it, they're going to do it at school, and they will tell them they can be whatever gender they want to be. They can tell them they can do whatever they want to do, and they're going to live life that have the fruit thereof. And I know it's hard raising young kids, but it is a calling that you're not just raising kids, you're raising Timothys. We need dads who view themselves as priests, not just breadwinners or little league coaches. That your sphere of influence is not on the ball field, it's in the bedroom with your kids as you tuck them in at night to read the scriptures over them. We need foster moms and dads who see their homes as their mission field in life. We need social workers that are on the front lines of the kingdom of heaven to advance God's kingdom through the families that are broken and torn apart. Like it is a calling, it's a sphere of influence that's needed to advance God's kingdom. And an example, a family here at the, at the chapel is Bobby and Amy Klingen. If you'll throw them up there. Bobby and Amy are incredible moms and dads. I, had, I did Bobby preach last fall on fathers and parenting because they've done it one. I'm a firm believer. You do not judge somebody by what they say, but the fruit thereof. And I've watched them raise three beautiful, amazing, godly young girls into young women. Watched it. They show the fruit. Then they started over by adopting their four beautiful, handsome sons. And they've done it in such an incredible way with the girls. If they could just found somebody to, to, for Layla Mary, besides Aaron Howard, which is the detriment to the entire family. <laughs> Outside of that, they're pretty much perfect. They've done it. And, and the key to influencing in the household, like with them, is creating an environment of love and truth. An environment of love and truth. Because in the world, there's environments of love, even if they're not real love, and there's environments of truth. But you need both because an environment of love is the only place where God's created people flourish. But you also need truth because that's the foundation where love actually grows. And so if you're a foster mom, if you're a stay-at-home mom, if you're a dad, all of you need to know my job, if I want to grow an influence in my household, is to create an environment of love and truth, writing scriptures on the wall. Talking about the scriptures, unconditional love, non-judgment environments where love and truth flow and reign. And you'll see the influence in your household increase. And you have examples like Bobby and Amy. The second one is print, digital, and social media. Where stories are so powerful in our culture. Whether it's social media and YouTube and, and print media and news and CNN and Fox News and MSNBC. They control the attitude of an entire nation. Stories are powerful. There's actually MRIs done that is one person's telling a story and another person's hearing it. Their brain wire, their brain waves become in sync with one another. It's powerful. I think that's one of the reasons Jesus was a storyteller. He told parables. He told stories. He was influencing through the print and digital social media of the time. And so we need disciples that use media to tell his story. We need godly journalists, godly filmmakers, videographers, and graphic designers. We need godly video game creators and influencers. We need so godly social media creators and influencers. We need people that say, God has placed me with these desires. I want to use this to advance God's kingdom and disciple people within my sphere of influence. One of the people that do this well is Dallas Jenkins. Y'all probably seen, seen the YouTube uh, series called The Chosen Dallas Jenkins created The Chosen. What you may not know, in 2002, he started a company with his mom, created some movies. He went on staff at a church, Harvest Bible Chapel, with James McDonald in Chicago, had, had created all types of movies there, and left the church world, left the church world, the comforts, the predictability, to move to Hollywood 
to begin to disciple and reach people in Hollywood. And through that, he says one day, he got tired of his Christian movies. He thought they were all terrible. He just wanted to do secular movies, but reach people who were in the secular world with the gospel, through relationships. He was mowing his grass, and God finally, he said, I heard God's voice say, are you going to finally start making movies for my people instead of the world's people? And from there, he did The Chosen, which is one of the most successful YouTube series ever. And he's doing it in the secular marketplace. Some of the keys to influence there is to be a trustworthy storyteller. If you're a journalist, you tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. Because a story told is only as credible as a storyteller themselves. And then worship God through your creativity. That if you're a storyteller, use your creativity as a form of worship, as you make videos, as you do TikTok and social media. Use your God-given creativity as a gift back in worship towards God. Number three is business and commerce, which most of us in this room fit in. Billy Graham once said that the next big move of God will be through believers in the marketplace. And to accept this call, we must know that the business world can be a holy place of work, one that is ripe for the harvest and of making disciples. And the character of God is in business. God owns it all. We know that through scripture. God flexes entrepreneurial muscles in creation. God's business model is rooted in fruitfulness, multiplication, and giving back. He's the landowner. He's the wise builder. He expects a return on his investment. He's the first creator of goods and services that would meet people's needs. He positions people to use their gifts and talents, both creatively and effectively. His central focus is the kingdom of God, not money. And he cares about those who work for him. We need people that look like Jesus in the marketplace. We need business owners that look like Jesus running a business. We need employees that look like Jesus as the employee. We need people who are business owners to mentor and disciple other business owners to strengthen the move of God in the marketplace. We need godly business owners who see themselves as stewards of God's business, not owners of their own business. We need godly managers that pastor their employees. They don't just manage their employees. We need godly bankers and financial advisors who help steward their money according to God's word and principles. We need godly employees who realize they are working for the Lord, not just for a paycheck. It makes a difference. Your workplace is your greatest ministry. And when you realize that, Lydia in the Bible was a business owner. She got saved and she started using her business to advance the kingdom through Paul's ministry. One of the influencers now is David Stewart. You may not know who David Stewart is. He's one of 13 African-American billionaires in the world. Came up in St. Louis in the Illinois area. It's extreme racism. His dad was a trash truck driver, really poor, went through all these things. Had a business, he started, his partner embezzled all the money. His mom told him, well, we may need to pray about it again. He goes to church and he realizes, if I'm going to do business, I need to do business by the good book. And he built his business strategy and principles off the word of God, not off MBAs at Duke or MBAs off MIT or MBAs from David Lipscomb. He based it off the MBA of Jesus Christ himself. And built his business, and now it's worth over $6 billion. And he does it all by the good book. Some of the keys to influence for you if you're in the business place is remind yourself that Jesus is your CEO and your business is his business. That you may be the boss which signs the paperwork and the check, but Jesus is the CEO. Pray diligently for those he calls you to serve as your employees, create a kingdom culture in your business, which Chick-fil-A has done, and they've blossomed through it. Their chicken's not good, but everybody likes people who are nice to them. Honor each customer, client, contractor, and employee as God does. One of the things we tell our staff here is that when vendors come in, whether it's for sales, pest control, uh, maintenance guys, security, when they come in, we treat them like they're a visitor to our church that God sent them to this place. You would be amazed at how many people we've sat down with in these pews and counseled them and prayed for them and shared the gospel with them that we're just here to do service work. Why? We look at every person that comes on this property as God sent them here for a purpose. 
And when you look at your business, every customer that comes in, God sent them there. Every employee you have, God sent them there. Every vendor that comes in, God sent them there. And when you treat them that way, God will reward you on the backside. Serve those God or live holy lives as we lead our businesses. Be prepared to share the good news with everybody in your business and be fruitful with what God has entrusted to you as a business owner. And as you do, I promise you, if you just do what God tells you to do, you'll see your business flourish and bloom. And maybe for you, that's starting a, a Bible. I know Johnny Fleury and them do a Bible study at their job. They've seen tons of guys get saved or get growing or discipled. Maybe for you, Tuesday morning, you start a Bible study. That's your discipleship group. And you start mentoring people in your marketplace. Number four is environment and agriculture. Environment and agriculture. Faith and science go hand in hand. And studying God's creation is an act of worship. It was some of my favorite times is hunting in the tree stand. I'll be sitting with RJ, and RJ loves the outdoors. He loves animals. He can talk about fish and birds and all these animals. Half the time we think he's lying, but then we look up Google, he's actually telling the truth. It's that holy curiosity about creation that becomes a form of worship. And God created everything. He created every plant, every animal. That God is the first environmentalist. He's the first farmer. He's the first biologist. He's the first nutritionist. And as you get caught up in the curiosity of how he did all that, it actually becomes a form of worship. God created everything on the earth and in it. The plants, the fish, the birds, the animals. He relates to all of his creation, not just humans. The heavens, the earth, the seas, the fields, the, the trees, the wild animals, the clouds, the lightning. He, his creation expresses worship to him. The heavens tell the glory and the work of his hands. The mountains and hills will burst into song. Every creature in heaven and earth and under the sea and all that are in them will declare he is Lord. He instructs through nature. He protects, preserves animals. He's made a covenant that includes plants and animals. And so when you're in environment and agriculture, you're actually an extension of God's hand of creation. We need godly farmers, godly veterinarians, agricultural scientists, zoologists, marine biologists, and park rangers, you name it. If you're there, there's people you can disciple and mentor within that realm as you worship God through studying his creation. One of my favorite people in this sphere is George Washington Carver. Many of you know him for the peanut, but some of the stories with George Washington Carver, who every biography I can get I read, his story is profound. He was brought in. His mom was a, a young girl. She was bought by uh, some farmers in Missouri. They didn't believe in slavery at all, but they couldn't have children. So the only way to adopt back then was they bought a slave, but they raised her like their own daughter. And during the Civil War, renegades would come through and steal slaves and resell them for free money. They stole her. They spent tons of money getting other renegades to chase down these renegades to get their daughter back. When they got there, she had already had her baby, George Washington Carver. He's about to die. She had been killed. And they brought him back, and he's always this puny little boy. They raised these white farmers in Missouri in the 1860s and 70s, raised little George Washington Carver just like their own son. As they raised him, he would treat other people as plants at six, seven years old and turn rose bushes that were dying into these blooming, flourishing plants. He helped them with their plants and their farms and their crops at young ages. He ran out of education because it was all segregated. So they took him at 10 years old and dropped him off in the city at 10 years old so he could continue his education. And lived in an apartment in a barn in the hay going to school until finally some little old lady found him, took him in and raised him again like his own her own son. And she told him, she's like, you're special. God has called you for such a time as this. She said, you're going to learn everything you can. And when you learn everything you can, I want you to come back and give it back to your people. And it stuck with him. Went to college and he had terrible college experience because of segregation. Ends up as this amazing, world-renowned farmer agriculture. He's turning things around. He understands the minerals and soil. He's rotating crops. He's saving all his money. And he comes to Tuskegee, this little poor sharecropper university in Alabama. And he comes there with hardly no pay, turned down jobs in Europe and DC and everywhere else to come to Tuskegee because he wanted to learn all he could and come back and give it back to his people. And he began to teach these sharecroppers how to rotate their crops so they could get more return on their harvest. 
And he created the Jessup Wagon, which was a mobile agricultural laboratory. He could go down to the deep south for people that couldn't travel to Tuskegee. He would show them how the soil was made up and how to rotate crops, how to use different parts of the pig so they could eat everything, how to use sweet potatoes, how to use potatoes, you know, all this stuff. Why? Because he realized he had a gift from God to bless the world through his sphere of influence. Years later, one of the biographers I'm reading was a pastor guy who wrote it. And there was a pastor, he said it was the most influential pastor he knew. Most passionate, powerful, spirit-filled preacher you'd ever seen. He asked this guy, he said, how did you get this power? He says, well, I went to hear this man named George Washington Carver speak. He said, and I was just wanting to hear about science and agriculture and farming. He said, but it was more of a, of a prayer meeting. He said, now this prayer meeting, he said, I'm touched. I'm moved by God. He said, and then George Washington Carver says, he points me out the Christ. He says, you're going to be, you're one of my sons in the Lord because I'd just gotten saved. And this man, this pastor, he said, I, I said, no, I'm not. He said, my parents own slaves. Never will I let a black man be my father. He said, he goes home that night. He has a dream about George Washington Carver holding the gates of heaven. And he said, he wrote a letter. George Washington Carver said, I want to be one of your sons. He began to mentor him. And now this pastor is mentoring all these people all over the world. Why? One man leveraged his influence. To change the world. The last but not least is specific people groups. That Jesus loves people. He loves diversity. He loves different types of people, different races of people, different ethnicities of people. And he gives certain people this desire or passion to connect with other cultures. And when they do, they build bridges that make an impact in other people's lives. God made us in his own image. He made us from all the different nations. He's the redeemer of nations, the discipler of nations, and he's worshiped by kings and nations all over the world. And some people have this unique calling to connect the dots. Some here, if you'll throw up Dan and Emily's picture, these are actually missionaries we support out of chapel. Dan and Emily live in Nashville. They moved there to be missionaries to the Somalian refugees in Nashville. And so they live in an apartment complex where they actually house refugees and they build relationships with them. Some of the things they do is they give camel milk. They sell camel milk. I, I'd, I, I about to say, I'd rather go to hell and drink camel milk, but that's not true. I would drink it if that was the gateway there. But they're selling camel milk. Why? Because Somalians, that's what they're used to. They moved to Nashville. You can't go to Publix and get camel milk at, in Nashville. And so you use that as a way to connect with them and so they're building relationships with these Somalians. There's 82,000 Somalis in the U.S. and 6,000 in Nashville. They are 99.9% Muslim with only 0.02% of Somalis that are Christians. And Dan and Emily could do a thousand things. He's an incredible leader and preacher and pastor, but he felt called to this sphere of influence. He's taking his kids to live there. Him and him have a beautiful family, and they're building bridges. A young girl here, she led worship last week, Lucy Prince. She's a student at UNA. Last year when she was here, she would leave worship rehearsal, go to UNA and pick up three of her Japanese friends that were students at UNA. And they'd go back and they'd watch. Her mom, Lucy's mom would email me and said, hey, she's discipling these young ladies. Can you get us some Japanese Bibles? So we found some Japanese-English parallel Bibles so they could study the Bible together. Mayuka went back to Japan after the semester's over. She watches online every single week. Last week, I asked Lucy, I was like, how's life? What's your major? How's everything going? She said, hey, I applied to go study abroad. And there were 11 possibilities. And I had no choice in where I went. And she's like, UNA just let me know this week that I got approved that they're sending me to Japan as a studying abroad semester. So I'll be 30 minutes away from Mayuka. And so God opened up another door for her to walk in the sphere of influence God has given her. You have a sphere. You are the fifth element behind enemy lines to infiltrate the kingdom of darkness with the kingdom of light. You are a lion. You are not a sheep. You are the influencer, not the influenced. You are the leaders, not the followers. You are sent out by God himself to advance his kingdom. And where God has placed you, there are people there. He wants to use your gifts 
to advance his kingdom, but he wants you to mentor and disciple people and pray for them. The easiest thing you can do is begin just praying every day when you go into work. Pray for your sphere. Pray for the people you're connected with in your sphere. Pray for influence. Pray for impact. And I promise you, you'll see God open up doors you would never believe would open. If you would bow your heads and close your eyes just for a second. We're about to get ready to receive communion. But before we do, I just want to encourage you that if you're not following Jesus, Jesus, maybe you've never said yes to Jesus, maybe you've followed him and you turned away due to life or circumstances or backslidden or maybe just got caught up in habitual sin, and the Holy Spirit's been calling you to say yes again. That's you. I'm not going to have you stand up. I'm not going to have you come forward. He said, you know, today's the day I need to say yes to Jesus. I want to follow him. I want to be made new by him. I want to be forgiven. I want to be redeemed. I want to be delivered. I want to experience his freedom and his hope and his peace and his joys and his joy. If that's you. Every head is bowed. Every eye is closed. That's you. Just slip your hand up real quick. So that's me today. Thank you. Put your hands down after you raised them. Anybody else? I'm going to pray. And after I pray, after we leave, if you raise your hand, I just want you to swing by connection point. Just say, hey, I prayed. And they're going to get a gift in your hand to help you on this journey. But Father, we thank you for the blood of Jesus that still washes, still cleanses, still makes new. I thank you for people that the Holy Spirit's working on, drawing them to you. Father, I pray as they confess their need for you, they confess their sin, they repent of an old way and walk in the new way, that you make them new again. I pray that you clear the, clean their conscience of guilt and shame and fear and worry and anxiety. And you allow for the fruit of the Spirit to be their identity. Hope, joy, peace, love, long-suffering, self-control, godliness. So we thank you. We bless you in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. If you did not receive communion, you can raise your hand up. Some of the ushers can get you. So communion works to receive communion real quick. As you're getting communion out, I want you to know how special this moment is. We do it once a month for multiple reasons, but it's a special moment that every single believer since the night Jesus was betrayed has had this same moment. Communion connects us to generation to generation to generation. It, it aligns us with the ancient foundations of our faith, it's a historical moment, but it's a living moment. And when Jesus was at the Last Supper, it was the Passover meal. And he was celebrating that Passover meal, which is a Jewish high holiday of the, of the passing over of death among the Hebrews as they escaped Egypt. They were very accustomed. They did it every year. They were accustomed to the story. And it came out of Exodus 6. This scripture says, Say therefore the people of Israel, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And I will deliver you from slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm of the great acts of judgment. And I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, and I will give it to you for a possession, for I am the Lord. That was a scripture read at every Last Supper. And they didn't just have one cup. They actually had four cups of Seder they would drink. Off these four promises, the cup of sanctification saying, God will bring us out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. The cup of sanctification. They would drink that cup. And when that cup was finished, they go to the second cup, which is the cup of deliverance, where the promise, I will rescue you from their bondage. When they drank the cup of deliverance, they would drink the cup of redemption. It says, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. And they would drink the cup of redemption. And once that was finished and dry, they would go to the cup of praise. I will take you as my people, and they would end with praise. And so at the Last Supper, they were actually going through four cups. In Jesus, some believe he makes it the, the last, the fourth cup. Many people think it was actually a fifth cup. Jesus added a fifth cup and said, this is the cup of the new covenant. Because these are promises of an old covenant, but I'm saying there's one that's even better. 
And the disciples would have been all struck with this new covenant. And we are part of this new covenant. We get these still four promises, sanctification, deliverance, redemption, and praise. We also get a God who's with us always, who lives with us and resides with us. So, Father, we thank you right now for the bread of life that sustains us, that gives us sustenance, gives us nutrients, not just for our body, but for our soul. We thank you for the words of Jesus that feed our spirit. We thank you for the life of Jesus that feeds our faith. We thank you for the body of Jesus that provides our healing. It's what we thank you for. We ask that you bless this bread to our memory. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's eat together. After Jesus had drank probably the cup of sanctification, after he drank the cup of deliverance, after he drank the cup of redemption, and after he drank the cup of praise, he poured another cup. And I don't think the disciples understood that as he poured that cup, he was actually saying, this is my blood that's going to be poured out tomorrow. But it's a new covenant, one not with priests and high priests and lambs and sheep and goats, the one where I am your sacrifice. And once I do this once and for all, it's done forever. It's an eternal covenant. Father, we thank you for the blood of Jesus. We thank you for the sanctification of Jesus. We thank you for the redemption of Jesus. We thank you for the deliverance of Jesus. And Father, we praise him right now for his perfection, for his holiness, for his righteousness. We also stand here in a new cup, a new covenant, as we participate and we drink today, Father, we pray that we're reminded of the past where Jesus bled and sacrificed himself for our sins. But Father, the blood is still working on us today. But Father, we're looking forward to the day he comes back again and we have this meal with him. We sit at the table with Jesus. We eat the bread and we drink the cup in his presence. Father, we pray right now that you provoke in us a holy pursuit of Jesus. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's drink together. If you would, stand to your feet as we get ready to dismiss. And just want to tell you, thank you, guys. We love you. These spheres, I want you to think about. Next week, we're going to cover some other spheres. But God has placed you somewhere to leverage what he's placed in you for his kingdom and for the benefit of those around him. Father, I pray that you bless these, your people. And as they leave, they don't leave unintentionally, they leave on purpose, being sent by Jesus himself as ambassadors, as missionaries, and as lions to conquer the world for your kingdom. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. Love you. See you next week.